title of this morning's message is Hope in Deep Trouble. Reading out of the English Standard Version. Listen to the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you always for your word. And we do believe that it is true and living and powerful. We recognize, God, that as sinful creatures, we are able to read it and it read like a dead letter to us even though it is full of life. But we thank you that you are able to make it come alive to us, that you're able to quicken dead spirits, that you're able to open deafened ears, to soften calloused hearts, and speak a powerful truth into it, Lord. You know all the need we bring with us today and all that we need to hear from you. And so we ask as we open our ears and hearts that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory and our good always. Lord, move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, Psalm 130 is considered a penitential psalm or a psalm of confession. It was said to have been a favorite of Augustine, Luther, Calvin, John Owen, and uh, John Wesley, among others for, for sure. It's one of my favorites too, but I don't add myself to the list of, of those uh, greats there. But partly because it is, it is such a heartfelt cry that anybody who's lived life for any length of time identifies with to a certain degree. Anybody who's walked with the Lord for any length of time identifies with to a degree. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. This is one of those Psalms I like to point people to when, uh, when there is just deep despair and you don't even know how to pray, just turn here and pray that. Start there. Psalm 55 is another good one in that regard. But this is, as I said, uh, said to be a favorite of many, including John Wesley. And in fact, it played an instrumental part of Wesley's conversion. It was a rather famous conversion in sort of Christian circles or in the uh, sort of annals of church history. 
As a young man, Wesley had come over to the American colonies from his home in England to serve as sort of a missionary of sorts in the state of Georgia. Uh, he did so for a couple of years, but he came to discover that during those two years of missionary service, he was actually unconverted. He was baptized, he was ordained for the ministry, all in, but he had never really become convicted of his sin and turned to Christ for forgiveness. That was his own account of things. His rather famous conversion came in May 1738, really just a couple of years after, uh, maybe a year and a half or so after he had returned from uh, Georgia. May 1738, he was at a meeting, a Quaker meeting, actually heard a reading from Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. His, his commentary on the book of Romans and they were reading a preface he heard about uh, justification through faith alone. And Wesley said on that evening, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins. That night in a kind of inexplicable way, John Wesley who was already an ordained minister, was born again, turned to Jesus. And that, that evening changed his life, but John Wesley's conversion changed the English-speaking world. But what's the interesting sort of footnote to that story is earlier that day, God had prepared him for the service that night. I don't remember exactly the reference. I believe that morning he had heard a reading from Matthew that said, the kingdom of God is near to you. Uh, one, one of those, some reference to that. But then he also heard that day at St. Paul's Cathedral, the choir sing Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. And that prepared his heart for what he would hear and receive and respond to that evening. This psalm was so powerful to Wesley and so beloved to countless others because there is such a clear message of desperation, but of forgiveness and deliverance in the desperation and out of the desperation. And so I wanna observe here three keys to finding hope in deep trouble. Finding hope in deep trouble. First of all, that we need to acknowledge that we are desperate for God's help. Second of all, that we need to know that God is full of justice and mercy. And third, that we need to trust God to save us from our despair. And so we'll take it under those headings first. That we need to acknowledge that we are desperate for God's help. The, uh, the, the psalm begins with, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. It's, it's actually hard if you, if you have been or maybe are in a place of, of deep despair even right now this morning, and I know that there are some who are. Not because I know your situation, just because I know there are this many people in the room. And I know something about living on planet Earth. And there's, it would be hard to find better words than this to begin an urgent prayer, wouldn't it? 
Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. Depths refers most literally to deep waters, but, but often or occasionally it uh, is used in more figurative ways in the Old Testament. But it's a picture of being overwhelmed by deep waters and, and feeling like you're going to drown. Th- those, those kinds of situations just produce despair and desperation, don't they? I mean, uh, many of us, again, if you've lived around the water for a lot of your life, you've probably been in trouble in the water before, right? Even if you just went to the beach as a child and the wave showed you who was boss and sent you tumbling to the shore, or if you've been out on a boat and a storm blew up, or any number of other ways, it doesn't take much for the water to make you feel really small and really desperate. And that's uh, the, the sort of metaphor figure uh, being given to us here. That sort of desperation produced in those kinds of circumstances. And perhaps the most vivid imagery in the Bible in this way is the story of Jonah. And you remember that story probably. Jonah was fleeing from God and he boarded a ship trying to get away. God caused a storm to blow up and toss the ship about and the other men on board sort of put two and two together. They heard him say he was running from God and then all of a sudden they fall into trouble and say, hey buddy, we're gonna get rid of you. Tossed him overboard into the sea, into the deep, into the depths. God sent a large fish to swallow Jonah up and it was then that Jonah cried out to God. Right? Tried to run away from God, got on a ship out on the sea, thrown into the water, and when he's in the belly of a fish, finally, he cries out to God. Out of the depths of the sea and out of the depths of the belly of a fish. Well, life has all kinds of ways of bringing us to those places. Just desperate for God. And we are more secure in a place of desperation that, that, that leaves us crying out to God for help than we are when we think we don't need his help. There is, a, there is a false sense of security we get when everything's okay and leaves us without a sense of our need for God. That's the, that's the cruel irony of living in the blessing of God even. Often it takes getting into deep trouble for us to recognize how desperate we really are for God's help because we are always desperate for his help. People turn to God when they realize they need him and they turn away from God when they think they don't. It's true for those who have never trusted in the Lord. It's true for those who have lived, uh, known the Lord and lived uh, with the Lord, walk with the Lord for a long time and yet live from time to time as if they can manage life on their own. Can I get a witness? All of us probably have been there unless you haven't ever walked with the Lord and uh, as soon as you start, you'll get there eventually. We live life as if we can manage it on our own. And God wants us to recognize our need for him and cry out to him for help. God is a sovereign Lord and Savior, 
a king who rescues, who provides, who protects for his people. That is what he delights to do. You know, you don't have a thoroughbred horse that you never let out to run. You don't have a hound dog that you don't ever let go chase rabbits or some kind of game. And you don't have a sovereign savior who doesn't rescue his people. He delights to do it. And when we live as if we don't need a savior, it is to our shame and to our dismay. Our sin ought to be sufficient to bring us around to those places regularly. Just, just, you don't have to have bad circumstances to know how desperate you are for, for God's help and God's grace. All you need is your own sin. If you're aware of how troubled you are by your own besetting sins, by your own repeated failures, by the things you stumble over time and time again, an awareness of that is sufficient to keep you coming back to God for a supply of grace. But if that doesn't do, our circumstances will take us there too. And uh, it is... Again, just sort of a regular, normal part of human experience that we cycle through seasons of uh, blessing and seasons of trouble. I haven't met anybody yet who doesn't know something of both of those seasons and all in between. But here's the reality of it. If it came down to it, it would be more gracious for God to throw us into the deep in order to have us call out to him for help than it would be for him to leave us, leave us on a mountaintop uh, thinking that we're sufficient on our own. I don't know if you followed that train of thought. And again, it's, it's ironic because uh, we, we, we find ourselves in times of trouble um, thinking somehow we've, uh, we're, we're in God's disfavor, that God has forsaken us in some way. And yet in many cases, in Jonah's case, it was an act of mercy that Jonah ended up in the sea and swallowed up by a fish. It's there that he cried out to God and God delivered him to safety. And it's more gracious for God to throw us into the deep where we cry out to him for help and find ourselves rescued by him once again than it is to leave us thinking we're fine on our own. We need to live with an awareness, a regular awareness that we're desperate for God's help. Not that we, not that we live with some false groveling before God. Oh, I'm so unworthy. Here I come again, my sinning self. And you know, like Eeyore or something, that's, that's not the point but it is to be conscious of the fact that he's a great savior and we're always in need of his help. The second key to finding hope in deep trouble is that we need to know God is full of justice and mercy. Because God is just, we're deserving of God's judgment. And verse three says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We don't know the, the 
if there was any particular circumstance in the life of the psalmist that inspired this psalm, but it's not uncommon for people to think when they've fallen into hard times, into deep trouble, that they've brought it on themselves because of their own sin. Sometimes that is the case. Sometimes it's just because you live long enough to fall into deep trouble. But this cry from verse three just expresses an awareness of, of sin and guilt and the deserved penalty and the magnitude of that. Because if God were to keep a ledger of our sins and the penalty that was owed because of our sins, none of us would have any chance of paying it. That's what, that's what the sort of essence of this message is. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand if you kept count of it, if you tabulated it? I mean, imagine, for instance, if every time you sinned, there was a $1 million fine assessed. I mean, your lifetime earnings would never come close if you worked all of your life and you never spent any of your earnings on anything else. You'd never come close to being able to pay that penalty, right? That's sort of the picture, the magnitude um, of, of our sin or the penalty for our sin far exceeds what we're able to pay. God's holy, our sin is against him and we, des we deserve punishment. That is, that is, that is what we deserve. Um, you, you and I don't ever wanna find ourselves uh, down in the mouth moaning about we haven't gotten what we deserve. You're right. <laughs> Let's keep it a secret. But he's not only just, he's also merciful. And verse four says, there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. That statement alone uh, is enough to write a book about. As a matter of fact, John Owen, uh, Puritan minister, just about did. <laughs> he wrote a book on this psalm, but most of it is on just verse four. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. That's the exact opposite of what we might expect it to say. You may have never thought about this because we know that there's forgiveness with God. We know that's true of him. Uh, we know that he is worthy of being feared. But this is a really interesting connection here. There's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We would probably think uh, there's forgiveness with you that you may be loved. There's judgment with you that you may be feared. So it's a little interesting twist, isn't it? There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Think about, for example, uh, a teacher that you had who always forgives infractions of whatever kind, late work, late to class, uh, whatever kinds of things, you know, just very lenient and understanding. Well, you probably loved that teacher as a teenager. Didn't really respect her probably. But a, but a person, an, an authority figure, in other words, with whom there is abundant forgiveness, 
is usually loved, not feared. Somebody who has really, really, really high standards or expectations might be feared and not particularly loved. But a proper understanding of both the justice and the mercy of God will produce in us a proper fear of God. See, because if God, if God were only forgiving and not just, he wouldn't really even be worthy of reverence and honor if there's no standard of righteousness in him. But if he was all judgment and no forgiveness, we would, we'd resent him. It would actually produce hatred, not love or fear. It would actually harden us against him because what, what can you do? Just sort of throw it all out there because what can I do? I don't stand any chance against God anyway. But a proper understanding of both the justice and mercy of God will produce in us a proper fear of God. Our trouble is never greater than we deserve, but his mercy is always greater than our trouble. Our trouble, our trouble is never greater than we deserve. Do you follow that train of thought? Because again, we, if we really did have our sin tabulated against us, we deserve far worse than we get. Our trouble is never greater than we deserve, but his mercy is always greater than our trouble. And we find in that uh, reason for immeasurable love for him, but also immeasurable fear of him. He is good and he is great. So we need to know that God is full of justice and mercy. And then third, we need to trust God to save us from our despair. The word, of course, the operative word in the text here is waiting for the Lord. It's sometimes the hardest demonstration of trust is waiting. I haven't really thought this week very carefully about the alternatives, but right now I'm not coming up with one that's any harder than that, at least for me. Wait, no, 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 not wait. Let me do something. Let me do something that makes me feel like I'm a little bit in control of the situation, right? That I can somehow improve my lot in some way, but that's exactly the point is that we don't add some merit to God's grace. It, it, it is God's grace alone that saves us. And so we need to trust him in that way. Listen in verse uh, five and six to the growing degrees of dependency. That, that's almost a way of describing this. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. I wait, my soul waits. I hope in his word. I wait more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman waits for the morning. 
There's nothing I can do for myself. I depend utterly upon God to save me. No mixture of my merit with the grace of God, as I said. No need for me to try to bring up that, uh, that the people I've helped, the good things that I've done that maybe could add to my account. Can you imagine going in, if every one of your sins was a million dollar fine, can you imagine how big that, I mean, I don't know, $25 trillion bill, I don't know what that is, it'd be a big one. Can you imagine digging in your pockets and going, let me see what I got here. Well, that's whatever merit we would bring, whatever, whatever goodness we would have in, our, in ourselves, whatever things we think we would have done that would uh, somehow contribute a little bit to that payment. We just need to keep in our pocket. None of the service we've done to the, uh, in the church or to other people cancels that out. It is confessing to the priest doesn't erase the debt and so on. I simply wait for the Lord with hope and expectancy. More than the watchman waits for the morning. Raise your hand if you've ever stood watch anytime. Any, anybody? Okay, I think I might have asked that question sometime before. Those who have served in the military would have done that. A pretty miserable duty, isn't it? When you, when you are uh, standing alone in the dark, in the middle of the night, everybody else is asleep and everything in you wants to be asleep too. And you stare into the darkness watching absolutely nothing happen. Minute after minute, or really second after second, right? I mean, time passes slowly for the watchman and the night. And so he's waiting, the psalmist, more than the watchman waits for the morning. Again, those who have stood watch know exactly what that means. Maybe those who haven't can appreciate how much you would be longing to see the sun beginning to shine. Hadn't peeked up over the horizon yet, but you can see the light is coming, waiting for morning to arrive. Nothing you can do to hasten, it's coming. And yet you couldn't be more eager for it to arrive. That's the sort of waiting that we're called into when we really understand that we're utterly dependent on God to deliver us. And that is a fitting a metaphor, a picture of the grace of God. What it means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't add any of our merit to grace. We don't add any good works to our faith. There is nothing that the church adds to Christ himself and his sufficiency to save. 
It is an utter dependency upon God to save. And it is that posture that, that, that gives us hope when we're in deep trouble. And it could be for the person, as I said, who's never known the Lord. This is true. This psalm was instrumental in, in saving John Wesley, one of the most influential Christian leaders in the English-speaking world. But it's been instrumental in helping countless other Christians along the way who years into their walk with the Lord still find themselves in some deep and desperate situation crying out to God once again, desperate for his help, knowing he's just and merciful and just utterly dependent upon him. And some may be right now in a season of waiting and you know you, you, you're almost a little, a little anxious or unsettled wishing there was something you could do to change your circumstances and there, and there just isn't. And you're just waiting on the Lord in a deep place of desperation. That is a good place to be. That is a much more secure place to be. Again, than thinking you're all okay. In fact, I, I would say it ought to be our great concern among evangelicals in America it ought to be our great concern more often that we are so troubled by the sins of the world and so oblivious to our own sin. It is, this is absolutely staggering to me, mind-boggling to me, and troubling enough to me that I keep bringing it up. That people are so micro-conscious of the sins of sinners of the sins of an unbelieving world, what in the world do you expect? So aware of the sins of other people, oblivious to her own sins. That ought to trouble us. That ought to stir us awake, beloved. Because don't think because you asked Jesus into your heart once upon a time that everything's okay and you live happily ever after as if you are not still in desperate need of God's help, always. And if you get comfortable feeling otherwise, you ought to immediately get uncomfortable about that. I mean, it is exactly that sort of person that Jesus poked at the most in his own ministry, didn't he? I mean, the, 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 the Pharisees who were self-righteous, who were quick to tell sinners how mired they are in sin, but won't lift a finger to help them out of the mire. That wasn't just true of the Pharisees then, it's true of Christians this day. Quick to tell sinners how mired they are in sin, won't lift a finger to help lift people out of the mire. Like the Pharisees, they neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. They're full of greed and self-indulgence. See the speck in their neighbor's eye, but don't see the log in their own. Outwardly appear righteous 
but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, denounce the sins in others that they don't struggle with. They're utterly blinded to the sins that they do struggle with. See, that, that ought to trouble us that we find ourselves so secure, so self-righteous, and so complacent. Would to God that he would bring us back one by one to a place where we know how desperate we are for his help. And that he is a God of justice and mercy. And if he were to mark iniquities, I wouldn't stand and not just because of what I did a long time ago, but because of my day-by-day stumbling. But it may be, again, that's, that's a, a sort of a word of application to those who are believers. It may be that there are some here today who have never trusted in Jesus. It may be like John Wesley. God's been preparing your heart to hear this very message. That, that's, that as I pray all the time before I preach, that God would use his word, that he would bring it to life for us, right? And he would cause it to be powerful and active in all the things that he says it is. And maybe today, it really has had that work in the hearts of somebody. Maybe even there are some who have been baptized, been part of the church, not, maybe not an ordained minister, but maybe so. But in other words, like Wesley, you've, you've done all the things that are sort of the marks, you think, of being a believer and being a righteous person and, and yet have never uh, come around to being convicted of your own sin and really turning to Christ, really trusting in Christ, not, ne- never having that uh, some sort of experience like Wesley of having your heart strangely warmed that you know you really do trust in Christ alone for salvation. John 3, 3 says, Jesus said in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say he can't enter the kingdom of God. But unless one is born again, all these things that are true about God, our desperate need of him, his justice and mercy, our utter dependence on him for salvation, we don't see it. We don't see it unless a man is born again. a work of the Holy Spirit in him, giving him new spiritual life, removing a veil that has covered his understanding of spiritual things, and just enabling him to see in some measure who Jesus really is, understanding what he's done, and turning to him in faith with with an utter trust and dependency. Well, see, that's the cry of Psalm 130. That that person who lives life for all their life up to that point in the depths finds himself suddenly crying out to God and finding him faithful and ready to deliver you out of deep trouble. Well, there may be any number of ways in which we need to respond to that message 
to this, the, just the message of this psalm, not my message, just the message of this psalm, that, that, that there's, uh, there's enough in there to stir every complacent soul to repentance, to faith, to trust, to somehow moving toward him, to somehow being more conscious, more aware of our own need for him, and offering a response of gratitude, of repentance, of whatever uh, is fitting for us at this particular hour. I want to, uh, as we pray, um, and the worship team comes, we'll, we'll have this uh, song of response. I'm going to invite a couple of our uh, elders and prayer leaders just to be available in the, in the back for prayer. And if, if there's anything you uh, need to pray uh, with somebody about or have somebody pray for you about, I would just urge you in this, uh, during this song of response to respond as the Holy Spirit would have you. That you might find in a fresh way hope in deep trouble. Let's pray. God, you are good. You're great. You are an all-sufficient Savior. Lord, I recognize today what's true of me is true of every Christian. That you saved me when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. You made me alive together with Christ. It wasn't because you saw potential in me. It wasn't because you just saw something a little bit attractive in me. It was in spite of the fact of all the things that were in me. But even when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, you made me alive together with Christ seated me with him in the heavenly places that in the ages to come you might show what are the riches of your grace and your kindness toward me in Christ Jesus. God, I pray today that you would stir the overly settled hearts of people complacent hearts of people. Lord, that you would stir us to cry out to you from the depths, Lord, that you would even make us more keenly aware of how far deep we are in trouble. That we would know of our need for you, cry out to you and find you to be gloriously sufficient. Lord, would you work out of us what you've worked in by the power of your word and the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name.